The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Customizing Care in Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia with BTK Inhibitors, Evidence and Applications for Therapy Selection, Sequencing, and Safety Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HZU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome you know, to the Customizing Care in CLL with BTK Inhibitors, Evidence and Application for Therapeutic Selection, Sequencing, and Safety Management. I'm excited to be here with you know, Dr. Jacqueline Brentis and Dr. Carrie Rogers. I will, I'll start with the uh, you know, introduction. We're here talking about CLL and targeting BCR or B-cell receptor signaling. And where does Burton's tyrosine kinase fit? And first of all, let's see if everybody is awake. Who's heard of Bruton's tyrosine kinase? Raise your hand. Yay. So somebody's awake. <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to refer to Bruton's tyrosine kinase as BTK, as, uh, you know, as will Dr. Brentus and Dr. Rogers. Don't get on your iPad, go to Google and look up BTK on Google because you'll come up with something awful that has nothing to do with Bruton's tyrosine kinase. Um, say the, the, why do we care about Bruton's tyrosine kinase? We care about Bruton's tyrosine kinase because in B cells, it's at a critical node. And by node, I mean a light, uh, you know, a light switch, um, channel that includes B cell receptor signaling. It includes the, the uh, integrin ligand, CXCR4, CXCL12, and other uh, you know, integrin related signaling and adhesion molecules that protect B cells from death by maintaining them in their microenvironment. And finally, it sets right in the middle of a complex that's involved in toll receptor signaling called Taurus, you know, called MyD88. It's a binding partner of that. And then if, you, if those three aren't enough, it goes into the nucleus and it probably has a transcriptional role that, so when you think of, when you think of things simply, and I like to think of things simply because I was in the army once and they always taught us to think simply about problems. And I'm also from Arkansas where we think about things simply. Um, so when we think about things simply, and we think about these three paths that, you know, you know, that, you know, that CLL, uh, and particularly Waldenstrom's work and, and other malignancies, when B cell malignancies are dependent upon one or two of these nodes, these drugs often will work. When you're lucky and you have a disease like CLL or Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, where the disease is dependent upon all three of these axes, these are game-changing drugs. And for sure, with CLL and Waldenstrom's, where you can see really durable remissions with these, you see, uh, you see very, very... Um, durable remissions, and we'll be talking about this as it relates to CLL today. We have a number of BTK inhibitors that 
are FDA approved, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. We have another one that's in the uh, com the compendium and the NCCN guidelines, xanabrutinib, a second generation medicine like acalabrutinib. And then we have this pertabrutinib, which is uh, in phase three testing. And there are many others that are coming. We, we only included uh, molecules that are in phase three uh, studies at this time. Um, as we look at where these fit in, and I didn't recognize how much people use NCCN guidelines for sort of deciding what they're doing when they're in general practice until, you know, I really immerse myself uh, in my new position with talking with general oncologists. But these are widely used, and you'll notice for really all types of CLL are the, the top uh, level one, category one, that means phase three data is demonstrated include BTK inhibitors. And then there's, there's this... Uh, Renegade, venetoclax, venetuzumab regimen that we'll talk about. And I say Renegade because we're talking about BTK inhibitors, but that's also um, a category one. I don't, and so don't walk away saying that you know this is not venetoclax is not an important drug either. Dr. Raj should talk a good bit about this. So the we certainly have patients who fall into. Um, in certain populations in the relapse setting where these are also category one. Um, and again, our BTK inhibitors that are approved, abrutinib and acalabrutinib both lie there. So they're at the top. What's the problem with these? Well, I think when you do clinical trials and patients are real motivated to go on to new therapies, you really you know, have great compliance. However, when you get things out in the real world and patients take a, take a medicine, maybe they're not as motivated to take the medicine as a patient that goes on a clinical trial, all of a sudden an adverse event that didn't bother that highly motivated patient really does lead to discontinuation. And two studies, one done by Dr. Motto and another that would parallel this in Europe, demonstrated that, you know, particularly with the first-generation BTK inhibitors, a great number of patients would go off for adverse events. And these can include atrial fibrillation. If you get that, nobody's going to qu question. But things, even things like diarrhea or arthralgia, you know, and if, you're, if your hand cramps up while you're driving, you know, and, and you're a truck driver, you know, it's probably a good idea to think about not taking that. Uh, particularly if you're in a small car driving, dri and you're, you're asked and you're in a small car driving down the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So how you know, the drugs that we have, we have ibrutinib, and, and why do we see this? Why do we see this differential um, adverse event profile? Ibrutinib is a great drug at inhibiting BTK, but it also hits a variety of other things. The red things show other targets that it's hitting. Whereas we have these second-generation BTK inhibitors that we'll talk a good bit about, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, that hit very less targets. You know, and you know, acalabrutinib hits about five, xanabrutinib a few more. And, you know, so by knocking out these different targets, we, by not hitting these different targets, we see less um, toxicity, which ultimately allows the patient to stay on therapy and to tolerate therapy better. So these things, the, you know, these, as I said, these alternative kinases, and I just throw up two, TEC and EGFR, 
actually probably explain a good number of the alternative uh, side effects, particularly bleeding with tech, because it's synonymous with, with, with BTK. But when you hit both, you, you tend to see more bruising. Then EGFR obviously can cause rash, diarrhea, and arthralgias and other things. But we also have another issue with these drugs, and I'm looking forward to Dr. Rogers' address of how we, we sequence our drugs to prevent resistance. And, you know, again, if you question the, the importance of the node BTK in CLL, the pathway of resistance tells us it's pretty darn important because the cancer, when the cancer cell changes something in the target to outsmart a drug, that tells you that target is important. The cancer can't bypass it and live. Um, and, you know, so we'll hear about this and most of the mutations that occur in CLL are involved in either BTK or in downstream, you know, PLC gamma two, where again, that pathway, um, through BTK is maintained. So our agenda is shown here where Dr. Brentis is going to talk to us about treating BTK inhibitors in the front line, including in high risk uh, settings, um, as say. I'll follow her talk and talk about safety and my consideration in patients when I'm picking uh, a BTK inhibitor for patients. And then finally, Dr. Rogers will talk about sequential use of BTK inhibitors and how they can be, how when our CLL, CLL outsmarts the BTK inhibitor and the drug fails the patient, that we can go to other, other options. So I'm going to turn this over. Um, to Dr. Prentice. So thank you very much. I'm here, delighted to be here with my colleagues at this talk. I'll be talking about um, the frontline treatment strategies for patients with a CLL diagnosis. So this is the clinical consult. An older patient, Matthew, with CLL presents with high-risk disease, 72-year-old man, uh, good performance status, demonstrates anemia, thrombocytopenia. He also has well-controlled hypertension, COPD, and his FISH analysis shows 17P deletion, um, 13Q deletion. He's mutated for TP53, and he's unmutated for IGHB. So what are the treatment options for Matthew? Continuous BTK I inhibitor therapy or venetoclax with venetuzumab? Um, if it's a BTK inhibitor, which one would be appropriate? And is there any role for chemoimmunotherapy? So how do we cite on therapy? Based on the current clinical evidence, and I will uh, discuss this in the next couple of slides, um, the inhibitors of BTK are highly effective in patients with a CLL diagnosis that carry the TP53 mutation. The netoclax and aminutuzumab are active compounds, but the outcomes are less robust in this setting, and there is absolutely no role for a patient with TP53 mutation to receive chemoimmunotherapy. So there's plenty of phase three evidence that supports the use of BTK inhibitors for frontline treatment of patients with CLL. For ibrutinib, we have the Resonate 2, which compared monotherapy against chlorambucil, Illuminate, which included the combination regimen with dovinotuzumab against chlorambucil and venetoclax and, um, and dovinotuzumab. ECOG 1912 and Alliance trials, both were uh, very similar trials that compared ibrutinib against um, FCR or BR, depending on your age and fitness. Acalabrutinib had the LFATN trial that showed a superior PFS and a better trend for overall survival with acalabrutinib regimens against obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. And last but not least, it's a sequoia trial 
um, of sanobrutinib against BR showing superior PFS against BR. Now, the longest follow-up is, of course, with the first uh, uh, in-class drug, ibrutinib. This is the data from the seven-year follow-up from Resonate 2, which continues to show a clinical benefit of monotherapy with ibrutinib against clonambucil. The benefit was similar for mutated and unmutated IGHP. Because the patients were randomized to receive clonambucil, this clinical trial did not include patients with a TP53 mutation or deletion 17P. But as you can see here, the median PFS has not yet been reached, even at seven years follow-up. In terms of how does acalabrutinib do, this is the longer follow-up from ELEVATN showing sustained PFS benefit with acalabrutinib plus or minus ovinotuzumab. Very clear, remarkable uh, improvement where the median PFS of ovinotuzumab with chlorambucid was uh, reported at 27.8 months against 87% uh, and 78% median PFS uh, was not reached for either arm. The study was not designed to compare whether or not the addition of ovinotuzumab was statistically significantly better than the monotherapy. So as of right now, even though there is a trend, we, it's not um, possible for us based on the data from the trial. However, if the patient is uh, fit and tolerate, could potentially use this drug. Um, with the data in terms of safety, uh, we saw that there was a higher incidence of neutropenic events and infections when ovinotuzumab was added. In unmutated IGHV subgroup analysis for the original publication, the 24-month PFS was 91% for patients that received uh, calabrutinib with ovinotuzumab. And last but not least, um, in terms of the phase three trials, sanabrutinib prolonged PFS against BR in treatment naive CLL, and this data will be presented at this year's ASH on Sunday at 10.45. It randomized patients to sanabrutinib against BR, and this study did not include patients with 17P. After a median follow-up of 26 months, the PFS was significantly prolonged with sanabrutinib, and this benefit was observed across subgroups that included um, uh, age, bulky disease, and deletion 11Q uh, presence. And the treatment benefit was also observed for patients with unmutated IGHV, which we know do relapse sooner when they're treated with chemoimmunotherapy. In terms of the pivotal frontline studies comparing chemoimmunotherapy against a VTK inhibitor, how do the patients with 17P deletion uh, do? As you can see here, even though the numbers are small, they're actually pretty good. We have solid evidence uh, from the Alliance Illuminate and Elevate TN trial that these patients do very well with median PFS uh, not yet established or reached at the time of the uh, presentation of the analysis of the data. Much better than patients that were treated with chemoimmunotherapy where the median PFS was very short in a matter of months. There is the data also from um, the NIH group on the right side, as you can see, uh, the long-term follow-up of, even though it was a small number of patients, 34, you see that our time, the overall survival and the median PFS is remarkable, improved compared to what we could expect um, from the patients that were treated before with chemoimmunotherapy approaches where the overall survival was expected to be between two and three years because we didn't have this novel agents. At this year's ASH, we will have an update from the Alliance trial that compared ibrutinib plus or minus rituximab against BR in patients that uh, included the 
patients that had 17p deletion or TP53 mutation. And as you can see, there was a greater benefit of ibrutinib regimens over chemoimmunotherapy. This was expected. We already kind of were, this is not a surprise for us. We knew that this was going to be the case. And there was no um, significant difference uh, whether or not the patients had or did not have the TP53 mutation. In terms of um, the phase one trial of acalabrutinib, at the 53-month follow-up, there is continued benefit of acalabrutinib therapy in treatment-naive CLL. As you can see here, there was a large number of patients compared to what we usually see in our clinic. We usually see about 10% or less of patients frontline with a diagnosis of TPV3 mutation, but here you see that there was an 18% of the patients had the TPV3 mutation. Um, in patients with a TPV3 aberration, the 48-month mo uh, PFS was 82%. And that is really good. And overall, the 48-month uh, PFS was 95.7%. And the median duration of response has not been reached. In terms of the ELEVATE-TN, which is the study that compared acalabrutinib plus or minus ovinotuzumab against ovinotuzumab and chlorambucil with a median follow-up of four years, as you can see here, the um, progression-free survival is at this time very, very remarkable. Um, both groups have very good uh, remission durations compared to what has been expected with fixed duration regimen of um, ovinotuzumab with chlorambucil with a median PFS of 17.5 months. In the CLL14 trial, um, we saw the outcomes recently of the longer follow-up of the fixed duration regimen of venetoclax with ovinotuzumab. And what it's becoming clear is that even though this regimen is very um, effective, uh, the data shows us that th the presence of unmutated IGHV or deletion 17P comes with an, it's an unfavorable prognostic factor, even if you receive venetoclax with ovinotuzumab. And this is for the reason that we think that maybe this patient should benefit more with daily continuous daily dosing. Or maybe this was not the best um, combination. Maybe venetoclax does work with other um, drug with addition of ibrutinib or another uh, BTK inhibitor. And I will mention that in the coming slides. So, would Matthew be a candidate for BTK inhibitor-based combination? Um, and what are the treatment options? Is there a role for CD20 monoclonal antibody use? Or what about using venetoclax with a BTK inhibitor? So let's discuss that. In terms of data with a monoclonal antibody addition, as you can see here, Illuminate showed an improved PFS uh, when patients were treated of, with ibrutinib and ovinutuzumab. Unfortunately, this trial did not include a monotherapy arm as a comparator. And in terms of the alliance, there was a comparator. There was a ibrutinib arm that was monotherapy or ibrutinib with rituximab. And there was exactly no difference amongst the two arms in terms of uh, adding an additional benefit. So that's the reason why, as of right now, in terms of ibrutinib use, we would not include another uh, monoclonal antibody unless the patient would require it, for example, if the disease is advancing very quickly or very rapidly, or there's an uh, episode of autoimmune hemolytic anemia or another autoimmune complication that would uh, benefit from the addition of the monoclonal antibody. In terms of adding ovinotuzumab to acalabrutinib, what we are seeing from the four-year update is that there are definitely higher rates of undetectable MRD with a combination treatment uh, 
strategy, and in post hoc analysis, the HR for PFS between acalabrutinib pivinotuzumab and acalabrutinib monotherapy was 0.49. As you can see here, um, patients that were treated with um, with the combination of acalabrutinib with ovinotuzumab, uh, they had a much higher level of uh, undetectable MRD in the um, in the testing. So, what about combining a BTK inhibitor with venetoclax and that this make a difference? There are two studies that have happened. The Captivate is the phase two trial that did a fixed duration treatment strategy of ivrutinib with uh, venetoclax, and the primary endpoint was. Um, achieving the fixed duration cohort uh, in patients without deletion 17P, a uh, meaningful improvement over the 40% rate that was obtained from the historical cohort of FCR in CLL10 trial. And so in this matter, we obtained uh, the study group uh, found that 56% uh, of the patients achieved undetectable, uh, the, the complete remission rate. And even though it was not in the prime part of the primary endpoint, as you can see here on this slide, the patients with a deletion 17P or TPGD3 mutation, which were 27 patients, they basically achieved the same overall response rate and the same complete remission rate. Now, patients that were treated in the GLOW um, study, which is a phase three study for older patients that were randomized to ivrutinib with venetoclax against ovinotuzumab with chlorambucil in treatment-naive patients, um, Patients with 17P deletion were not allowed to participate because they would have received um, chlorambucil as one of the uh, comparators, and that is not something that we recommend. We don't want patients to receive chemoimmunotherapy because we know that it doesn't work. However, the combination uh, did reduce the risk of progression or death by 78% when compared with comparator. The only issue that I see with this particular study is that um, when you look at the outcomes in terms of discontinuation and in terms of toxicity, there are more toxicity events that are witnessed or observed on patients that are elderly. So maybe the treatment strategy of combination is not as good for an elderly patient, and it might be reserved better for fitter patients or younger cohorts. Another treatment strategy is novel treatments, uh, triplets, ibrutinib, venetoclax, and aminotuzumab. This is showing, or IVO, showing um, Dr. Kerry Rogers, my colleague here, um, uh, presented this data of this phase two study in um, patients with treatment-naive disease and relapsed refractory disease. And the overall response rate was 84% in treatment-naive patients and 88% in relapsed refractory disease. Um, patients were uh, able to achieve undetectable MRD in the majority of the patients. And at a median follow-up of 24 months in treatment-naive patients, the median PFS and the overall survival have not yet been reached. This treatment strategy is safe, and it's now being conducted in larger studies. This was just the original study. Other time-limited treatment strategy is the regimen AVO, recently published in the Lancet Oncology, time-limited acalabrutinib, venetoclax, and ovinotuzumab. Um, the primary endpoint was not met uh, because it was complete remission with undetectable MRD. However, the regimen was very active with very uh, high rates of notable complete remission rates across patient populations. And there was a high proportion of patients with undetectable MRD in the bone marrow, which supports further investigation as, as such. This study is also part of the backbone for a new phase three trial. As you can see here, even in patients with TPVT3-mutated disease or undetectable um, or unmutated IGHV, you see that the patients are able to achieve over time um, CR with 
um, undetectable MRD uh, in the uh, in the study in the laboratory. And last but not least, we have boven. Uh, boven is sanabrutinib with venetoclaxanovirutuzumab, very highly active with robust undetectable MRDs in treatment uh, naive CLL rates. This is a phase two trial, 39 patients. And uh, what we saw was 89.2% of patients achieved undetectable MRD in the peripheral blood and in the bone marrow and stopped therapy after a median of 10 months. The results improve over time. And as you uh, know, most of these treatment, treatment strategies, they do stagger. They start with one agent to debulk, minimize the risk for TLS, because venetoclax is one of those drugs that we know that may put the patient at higher risk for TLS development. And then over time, what we see is that with the um, addition of the other agents, we can achieve these deep remissions, which end up correlating with longer progression-free survivals and overall survivals. So even though we are not there yet in terms of curing, we are hoping that at some point we can give our patients time-limited uh, treatment strategies that allow them to have no need for further therapy for a good solid time, such as what we were able to achieve in the past with chemoimmunotherapy regimens such as FCR and BR. So these are our uh, take-homes from my talk. When you select upfront BTK inhibitor therapy, please be aware of the baseline prognostic features. Um, study by the Informed CLL Registry presented recently showed that less than a third of the patients actually get tested for uh, for mutations of IGHV and for TP53 mutation by next-generation sequencing or by uh, deletion 17P by fish analysis. Now, first and second-generation PTK inhibitors are active choices in patients with a TP53 mutated disease. The current data suggests that uh, the highest benefit for our patients with this particular mutation is with continuous daily dosing. As of right now, it hasn't changed. So we would recommend the use of a BTK inhibitor and time-limited treatment strategies continue to be evaluated with different combinations as doublets or triplets. And with that, uh, thank you for your attention. Great. Um, we're not going to let you off. We're not going to let you off the hook, say, because you, you covered such important, you know, such important data. Um, for, uh, you know, you talked, you, you sort of first generation CD20 antibody, first generation BTK inhibitor in, in the Alliance study, no benefit, um, CD20 antibody for a decade and a half, dramatic, you know, dramatic benefit in, you know, in, you know, in CLL with chemoimmunotherapy. So. Second generation, the first this really the the, uh, the elevate treatment uh, naive was it was you know those curves looked pretty good say with the combination um, and so it's, it's where 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 I'm just curious it, it's, say where the two of you use CD20 antibodies with BTK inhibitors when you're combine you know when you're seeing patients. So personally, for um, you know based on the recent. Uh, longer follow-up of the LVTN trial, I've started to move towards adding on obinutuzumab to acalabrutinib if the patient is fit and if they have high risk characteristics, because I discussed with them that it might cause them to have more neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and more possibility for infection risk. But even though that is a risk, 
the outcomes seem to be a deeper remission, which may correlate with longer progression-free survival. So it would be kind of like a young, fit patient in my perspective. Dr. Rogers? Yeah, I think it depends on why someone selected a calibrutinib, who they are, and, and kind of what their goals are. So for older patients where the additional hematologic toxicity might really matter, or for people that very much want to avoid infusion visits, you know, I think the um, efficacy of single-agent acalabrutinib is certainly good enough that it is, I don't feel like a compelling need to add that to get the additional benefit, especially if you're looking at people with lower intermediate risk disease who are older, the toxicity might be worse, the burden of those appointments might be worse, and they're probably only going to take one therapy in their natural lifespan. You know, I don't know that the, the benefit um, of that additional improvement in PFS really favors the hassle and the toxicity. Uh, I will say the breakdown of that, where you see um, those with um, 17P, there doesn't look to be a huge advantage to the obinutuzumab there. Of course, the sample size is smaller. So I'm not sure in that particular high-risk setting, it, it really matters either. Um, so I have not used that much, except for, um, as Dr. Barriantis was saying, people with um, concomitant autoimmune cytopenias or a need to reduce disease burden quickly, um, because I, I don't know that for most of the patients I'm prescribing it for, the toxicity is worth the payoff, although I certainly uh, would for the patient she was describing. I, I would agree with what both of you say. And the, Dr. Wojak, you know, at Ohio State, shared the initial study with that, com you know, with that combination that was published in Cancer Discovery. And, you know, what's impressive, because a number of those patients were mine on that combination, is that as you follow them, most, many of them became MRD negative with time. Some of them stopped. And so I think a question that we'll be addressing is, you know, with doublets, particularly second-generation BTK inhibitors that work better with second-generation CD20 or third-generation CD20 antibodies, you know, is that as good or is these, you know, the doublets? Um, before moving on, say, we have two questions. We have two questions. I think that fit really well with your combination, uh, Dr. Parentos, Would you would you consider um, a particular BTK inhibitor when you're combining with um, a BCL2 inhibitor based upon safety, you know, safety and the data that exists right now? I would say, based on the data that you're going to present next, I would probably choose a second-generation BTK inhibitor because it's safer and you can achieve more or less the same um, efficacy. So that would be my answer. Dr. Rogers, what do you So I think that we're expecting the first approval of a combination to be with ibrutinib. And uh, if you're not treating someone as a participant in a clinical trial, I would select the one that is approved. Although I agree, I think the second-generation ones are likely to be safer. So I'm excited to see how um, that comes along. The other thing that I'm excited about for fixed duration, you know, ibrutinib or other BTK inhibitor and venetoclax combinations is that it can spare patients some of the longer term side effects of BTK inhibitors, such as atrial fibrillation um, and hypertension, where the incidence increases over time. So that will limit the toxicity of any of them to an extent by discontinuing it. All right. That's great. Safety that leads into. I'm going to talk a little bit about and the talk of the discussion that I'll lead is staying safe, understanding the toxicity profiles that informs treatment decisions. So, I'm going my my clinical consult will be with Jack. And Jack is a young man, 48 years old, who presents with symptomatic CLL per the IWCLL criteria. He's you know he's barely working. 
with a performance status of zero to one. He has anemia and thrombocytopenia that, you know, that is manageable. He's obese, has quite poorly controlled diabetes, hypertension. He did have AFib, say, um, with, you know, with a very stressful event now that's medically managed, hasn't recurred. Uh, and his creatinine clearance is 40. Um, his fish is dele- has deletion 13Q. Um, his P53 is wild type. And he does have IGVH, um, unmutated disease, which likely explains why uh, he has progressed so quickly. So um, what treatment options do we uh, have for Jack? Continuous BTK inhibitor uh, therapy, plus or minus venetuzumab the venetoclax plus abinutuzumab. The question is, if, if a BTK, would any of these agents be appropriate? And then is there any role for uh, chemo immunotherapy in this, uh, in this patient? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by saying that uh, having, say, a good bit of gray hair and being conservative when I start therapy Say I, I generally um, am, am somewhat dismissive of venetoclax, of venetuzumab, in choosing therapy for most of my patients because there's really only one phase three study. Uh, there's there's really say that's per- pertinent to um, upfront treatment of CLL, the CLL fourteen study, and that's one of the only studies where there was a great difference in progression free survival. So it's very significant, as Dr. Brentos talked about. But the overall survival actually favored the control arm, quarambosil plus abinutuzumab. So the ha- there was, there was, and you usually don't see that. And so I want to see more long-term data with venetoclax abinutuzumab. And a lot of people use it. It's a correct choice. So we're going to talk about BTK inhibitors. And then also the chemoimmunotherapy is for the IGBH mutated patients. And patients with renal insufficiency, one would one would worry about giving fludarabine in such a you know in such a patient because of neurotoxicity and uh, you know and other things that can occur. So we move we move uh, you know, we move forward with this patient, um, say you know, and deciding on therapy, we really again need to consider the you know we need to consider the um, you know the other options. I've given you my own implicit bias based upon data for why I generally use BTK inhibitors. We have a, a decade of long-term follow-up on those. Uh, and um, say the probably it's, it's in, in my opinion, this would be a patient that I would move forward with a BTK inhibitor. And because of the hypertension, the prior, the prior atrial fibrillation, this patient has an incredibly high risk of cardiovascular disease based upon his age and where he's at. You know, say probably considering an agent that has a safer cardiovascular um, profile would be the direction that I would go. So let's talk about that a little bit and which BTK inhibitor we would choose. So, you know, I think when we think of toxicities, associated with the class of BTK inhibitors, uh, you know, there, you know, there are some that are short, uh, you know, that occur very early and that go away. Um, you know, the, and then there are, you know, there are many that sneak up on us over time and are just grade one or grade two 
but are incredibly irritating to the patient or put the patient at risk for long-term morbidity and mortality from other things. Um, you know, and those, those in particular are hypertension, uh, and atrial fibrillation, which correlate, although with, you know, with, um, you know, ibrutinib, you know, there's a distinct early, uh, atrial, um, atrial, uh, arrhythmia that occurs and that will continue to recur, you know, and so in that group, you know, in that group, you know, say, you know, you have, you have an overlap. So as we look at the different, you know, you know the different studies, phase two and phase three studies that have been done with ibrutinib, these are summarized here. And it's really challenging to look at toxicity because when you're doing it, and, and if there's, if there are any fellows in the audience, if you build your career on toxicity, get ready to get, you know, get ready to have a lot of tomatoes thrown at you because we all get excited about new drugs. And as you're developing a new drug, there's the tendency to say, oh, that's related to something else. You know, the patient didn't t talk about their, their joint pain before they didn't talk about the atrial fibrillation. And I'll attest, I was one of the, I, I was part of this when we were developing ibrutinib. We had the first, the second, the third atrial fibrillation case. It's like, well, this, you know, they're, they're old, they have hypertension. There's another reason for this. And you have, we all have our implicit bias. And particularly when you see a patient getting better in front of you. And really the, this is the sort of the value of phase three studies, because they, they take out the, you know, they take out that subjectivity of the investigator, um, and you know, say, and even when they're not, even when they're not blinded, you can't, you know, say you can't fudge as say, if somebody has AFib or their blood pressure is going up, uh, you know, or if they have an infection that requires, you know, say that requires and again, the best example of this too is, um, uh, bruising and, you know, say when patients, you know, when patients started you know, when we started with ibrutinib and we started seeing bruising, there was more attention to, you know, there's more attention to that as you brought second generation BTK inhibitors forward because we knew, we knew about it. So this, the, this really outlines, um, the toxicity in the different phase three studies, but, and what I'll call attention to, you know, what's important is you, know, you do see grade three, say grade three, um, and four hypertension, uh, and atrial fibrillation that clearly is higher, um, you know, you know, with, you know, with ibrutinib in many of these studies versus the control. Um, you know, as we look at acalabrutinib, say, you know, again, we, you know, and, and xanabrutinib, a second generation BTK inhibitor that is more selective. So it hits BTK, but it doesn't hit many of the other targets. We have less atrial fibrillation, less hypertension. Um, but again, the people that were involved, you know, the people that were involved in these studies had their implicit biases. Who are those people? I guess I guess I raise my hand. So I think many of us in the audience could raise our hands. And so again, it still comes down to the gold, you know, the golden phase three study where you compare the first generation BTK inhibitor to the second generation BTK inhibitor. So what about the head-to-head -head comparisons of BTK inhibitors in CLL? And before I go, before I show this, before I show these data, I'm going to say again, as the historical person up here, that the best way to have done this would have been to have done a randomized, um, blinded study 
where you put ibrutinib, you gave ibrutinib and xanabrutinib in unidentifiable uh, tablets. And, you know, there were all kinds of geopolitical pharmaceutical reasons that that didn't occur. You know, that would have been the best way to, for it to have occurred. But, you know, the drugs are given on different schedules. You, you would have had to have had pharmacyclics cooperate with, um, with, um, you know, say with the uh, other two pharmaceutical companies that were developing these. And it would have been wonderful if that would have done, been done, but it wasn't for reasons that we, I think somebody is writing a book about at this point. So let's talk about the data in a unblinded way. Um, say, you know, the Elevate at Relapse and Refractory study was the first comparison, you know, that's been now fully peer-reviewed and published that compared ibrutinib versus acalabrutinib in high-risk relapse and refractory CLL. This was an open, you know, an ongoing, this is, it's ongoing, but it's, it's you know, it's done. It was an inferiority trial. It hit its endpoint. It included high-risk patients with deletion 17P and deletion 11Q CLL, um, say the performance status of zero to two. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival to show the two were um, equivalent. Um, you know, the secondary endpoints were atrial fibrillation, grade three infection, Richter's transformation, and overall survival. And this, that each of those were examined in that successive order. If one did hit, the analysis was done. So we won't show statistics for a lot of the side effects, you know, that occur because they weren't part of the primary secondary endpoint, but you can see in the curves, you know, that, you know, a picture is worth a thousand uh, words in many cases. You know, this was, this was, this was a brave study to do because Ibertib is a great drug. Uh, and, um, and there are faults with this, you know, there, there are faults with the study that were not known. You know, the 11Q patients do very, very well with BTK inhibitors in general, you know, and so really, really, you know, kudos uh, to the, uh, you know, to the, the study group at, at, you know, at Asserta, um, say for moving this, you know, for moving this trial forward. But what's the answer? The answer is they're pretty, they look pretty darn close to the same. You know, this looks at the, you know, this looks at the, you know, the progression-free survival over time in high risk, you know, in high risk patients. And they're the, you know, they're the same. This is the survival, the survival, uh, you know, the survival is statistically not different. You know, the hazard ratio is 0.59 to 1.15. Um, so, you know, it crosses one, but it is 0.82 and it does favor a calibrutinib. You know, we'll see what happens with time. These patients will continue to be, uh, you will continue to be followed as more go off. It's going to sort of be hard to interpret this, but, uh, you know, at least the survival is going in the right direction for a second generation BTK inhibitor. What about those events that we care about in the patient that we were talking about? Time to atrial fibrillation. You know, what you see with this, you know, you know what you see with this curve here is, you know, with a brutinib. You see this early, uh, you know, this early flex, whereas it, this really, the, the curves, so the curves look different here. When you get, to, when you get out here, they look the same. And, and you, one sees that hypertension is successively going up. It's going up more with, you know, and really it, it, say with Ibrutinib, there probably is an off-target 
intrinsic cause, and this has actually been published now, one of the off-targets of, of ibrutinib and not of acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib that does, uh, you know, you know, that does appear to be related to uh, inhibiting of SART kinase and promoting atrial fibrillation early in patients who are predisposed to this. Uh, and then later atrial fibrillation that occurs with all the BTK inhibitors that we don't understand that probably is related to hypertension and cardiac remodeling. And, and lots of people are interested in this in very interesting biology. So what about other, you know, say, what about the, you know, the details of this again, you know, we have, um, we've talked to some extent about this, but you know, in some, we see that the frequency of this is significantly higher with, you know, with ibrutinib as compared to acalabrutinib. And again, even if people weren't blinded to what drugs they're taking, I've not had atrial, fibr atrial fibrillation, but I've been, I would guess from the symptoms that I've seen patients have with it, it's not something that you could fib, you know, it either occurs or doesn't occur. Um, what, what about other events? You know, the variety of other secondary events that it could, or secondary toxicities that were shown to be different in, in this study and really outs, you know, outside of headache and cough. All of the other, all of the other secondary, all of the other secondary adverse events were more common with ibrutinib than acalabrutinib. And again, this is just shown here, time to event. So we 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 have a second study, the Alpine study, that took us another second generation BTK inhibitor, xanabrutinib, which and compared it to ibrutinib. And this study is different. This study had the primary endpoint of overall response rate, looking at up to up to 36 months. It included all relapsed CLL patients. And there was a preliminary presentation by Dr. Hillman at, 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 say, at this past EHA meeting. And again, they showed a superior uh, response rate with xanabrutinib as compared to ibrutinib. And then it, it, you know, an unplanned look at progression-free survival that showed, you know, that showed a difference. And again, this was not a pre-specified analysis. And so I, I worry about how to interpret this. And a qu common question is, was xanabrutinib better than acalabrutinib? I don't know. You can't, different patient populations done at different times, uh, you know, say maybe, maybe you know, say Beijing and uh, AstraZeneca will partner and do a study comparing their two drugs. And we'll know the answer to this. Um, probably not the most useful for tr trial resource though. This again shows this, the same time to, you know, time to event. And lo and behold, you even see it better on this, uh, you know, on, in this, that you see this flat, this flat frequency of atrial fibrillation that goes up with time. You know, whereas with ibrutinib, you see this real quick flux during the first three to six months of therapy. And again, when I see a patient develop AFib that didn't have AFib in this early time period, they're done with ibrutinib because, because, you know, they're predisposed to this and it's going to recur almost always. So we have, so, you know, say so we have our clinical consult here, it, it, Jack, we talked about this, he was young, I, young patients. I like to treat with acalabrutinib plus a benetuzumab. Because, because of, say, you know, I believe CD20, I don't like to take away therapies that I know in the past have prolonged survival in, in, in CLL, unless there's a chance that it's, it's affecting at ad, the adverse outcome. It's going to have an adverse outcome in the patient. 
this patient had a, an exceptional response. Uh, you know, he went into complete remission. You know, we kept him on his acalabrutinib, uh, and uh, say he developed a pruritic rash that just came on, and it was it, it was he just couldn't talk. It was it was horrible. He was just itching all the time. He was on Benadryl. You know, this, say didn't like that. So, what are our options at this point? Can we change the BTK inhibitor? Can we do venetoclax? Can we observe off therapy? And, and I'll tell you what we did with this patient. So he had no disease. We observed him off therapy, and he's still off therapy. So as we as we think of BTK inhibitors and safe, the safety monitoring, um, it, let's talk about a few things. This class of drugs in general, whether it's brutinib, xanabrutinib, say acalabrutinib, there's no data, with, there's no safety data with warfarin, with the second generation molecules. That's because with the first generation molecules, very early on, very early on there were five patients that got spontaneous subdural hematomas, one that ultimately died, you know, say when these two were given. If I give anticoagulation, you know, I usually will give, you know, I would usually give a 10A inhibitor, a thrombin inhibitor, but I stay away from warfarin. Um, for new onset AFib, the time of onset and also the repetitiveness is important. Again, early onset, we can talk about this later. I switch to a second generation, let's say, uh, or to a non, you know, you know, to a non um, uh, BTK inhibitor class. Um, you know, and and for AFib, if I'm seeing somebody that's young that 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 has this and that it's recurrent or that comes in like this before I'm going to start, I often will have my EP doctors see them to see if if they have recurrent AFib, if an ablation procedure is going to help them. For hypertension. I you know I manage with antihypertensions. If if somebody is on it comes on, they're on one medicine, they on two, they're on three. I often will switch them to a second generation if they're on ibrutinib. And sometimes you see that in perf. Sometimes you don't. So say it's you know so say I think it's an an area of active study for the arthralgias. I love magnesium and calcium. Sometimes that helps with you know with ibrutinib. I generally don't like to dose reduce, although you can do that. If patients develop high-grade arthralgias, I generally will I generally will switch to a second generation or stop the drug. So, with headaches, again, say starting at a low dose with acalabrutinib, that can sometimes that can sometimes help. Uh, and if if they're un, if they're unbearable, you know, say with a single dose, you know, with a single dose. Uh, then you know I'll switch. Uh, you know I, I sometimes will use a first generation because the headache seems to be worse with second generation molecules. That only occurs in a few patients. Acalabrutinib shouldn't be given with the with a proton pump inhibitor. It affects absorption. We'll see if you know, we'll see if the new formulation addresses this. Um, and then you know with neutropenia, this is seen more with xanabrutinib for reasons we really don't understand. Um, and you know, generally, you know, generally, I dose reduce for that. Although, say, although it's reported in the study, I've not seen it that often. We'll fit. We'll finish last with the don't list for safety with BTK inhibitors. Don't treat asymptomatic patients. Don't treat patients without adequate education. This is where the pharmacist is great because if if a patient you tell a patient a drug is real tolerant, it's a pill. You know, they're going to do great on it. And then they have horrible headaches. You're not gonna you're not gonna get a Christmas card from that patient. And these drugs during the first during the first month of therapy can be challenging, so, you know. And that leads to 
Something I see very often is that patients will be given the oral drug, they'll be sent out and you know, say without education and to come back the next month and really seeing patients weekly, whether it's first generation or a second generation until they're doing well is good. Even if your nurse practitioner is doing that, you're not doing it yourself. Again, we said, we said administering any BTK inhibitor with warfarin, that, you know, if they have a mechanical valve, which is really one of the main reasons you would still consider warfarin, I, you know, say I would use an alternative therapy. That's where I use venetoclaxobinutuzumab uniformly. You know, say the, you know, I wouldn't ignore the data of the comparative studies of first generation uh, and BTK inhibitors because there's going to be even more data coming forward. They're safer. They have similar efficacy. They have similar efficacy, and we're there. You know, say say the say there's say outside of select uh, settings, uh, you know, our patients long term don't deserve hypertension, you know, hypertension or more complications. And then finally, being being aware of acalabrutinib's interaction with PPIs, and you know, this doesn't exist with xanabrutinib, and you know, this is commonly where we use xanabrutinib. And it's not a small population, the older patients. Turn things over to, to Dr. Rogers at this point. So I'm the last up, and I'm going to talk about sequencing. So hopefully everyone's still awake for this. I know it's early. Um, so I'm going to pick back up with the original case that we started um, and have an update on that as we move through sequencing. Um, so again, just to remind everybody, this is Matthew. Matthew is 72 and had CLL requiring treatment. Um, and just to remind everyone, Matthew had some comorbidities and uh, did have deletion 17P and a TP53 uh, mutation and was started initially on ibrutinib at the standard dose. So since we just talked about uh, adverse events and side effects of these drugs, uh, what happened to Matthew is that you can see within a month the drug was working. So the platelet count and the anemia were improving. He had some lymph nodes that decreased. He got the expected treatment-related lymphocytosis. It all looked good. And then at six weeks, developed um, painful joint inflammation um, that was so severe, he was having trouble getting around his house and had to give up golfing. So he called and said, I can't move. All my joints hurt. And they're red. They're swollen. He gets examined. Ibrutinib is held. And he started on low-dose prednisone, which fixed it all. And he thought, oh, boy, that is great. So after this resolved, he was restarted on ibrutinib with a dose reduction to 280. And um, within two days of taking the lower dose, he calls and says, oh gosh, all this inflammation is back. I was really hoping to go back to golfing and I can't do this. Everything hurts. So I think now the question is, what are the options? You know, observation of therapy is probably not going to be an option because I doubt that six weeks of a drug is going to fix this for our patient. Um, so really, would this require a, another dose reduction to something like 140 a day? Should we switch to a different BTK inhibitor or just call it a day and switch to a different uh, class of drugs? And I'm going to ask my other presenters to comment, and I was going to start with Dr. Bird on this one. So what do you think the best option would be for Matthew? I think you've got several good options. I don't like to dose reduce BTK inhibitors, and so I probably further beyond where you're at. So I probably would switch to a second generation BTK inhibitor. Yeah. It happened so quickly that my concern is you try ibrutinib again, it's going to happen again. So I would probably switch him to a second generation just to 
uh, for the concern that he's just not going to want to be on, and, and I really want him to be on a BTK inhibitor. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, this person, as was reviewed earlier, has benefits to a BTK inhibitor with the deletion 17P. You know, you could switch to a different class of drugs that would work for toxicity, but you've really then not allowed the patient to benefit from this therapy that we all kind of discussed was going to be kind of optimal for disease management. Um, so I agree. I would also switch to a second generation BTK inhibitor for him. Uh, so options would be a calibrutinib and then xanabrutinib, which we um, know xanabrutinib is not currently FDA approved for CLL. Um, but there's certainly enough data to support its use. And then um, adverse events can be challenging to address. And this isn't something that you can coach people through for, you know, a fixed duration and then say, okay, well, if you can just tolerate this for a few more weeks, we'll be finished with therapy. You know, these are continuous and there are some adverse events, um, as was shown, that increase with time on drug. So that's why it's really important to manage these for our patients. And of course, adherence to taking this drug therapy is important as well. So there are prospective studies looking at this uh, switching from one BTK inhibitor to a second generation um, BTK inhibitor for intolerance. So this is specifically for intolerance, not for patients who developed resistance to the drug. And this is a dedicated phase two study in this population. And this is a study in patients who discontinued ibrutinib due to intolerance, and there were criteria for what intolerance meant. They were observed off therapy, and if they had progressive disease, demonstrating that they still required a therapy, they were started on a calibrutinib. Um, this is the progression-free and overall survival um, from that study. You can see the overall response rate was 73%. So this clearly shows that in ibrutinib intolerant patients, a calibrutinib can be effective. Um, but most importantly, the question is, do these adverse events recur or are patients able to take this drug? Um, so this is just some data from the study showing you the adverse events that were the cause of ibrutinib intolerance and then whether or not they recurred on a calibrutinib. And you can see the majority of them did not, and those that did were generally a lower grade. Um, so you can see there in the top, there are a lot of cases of atrial fibrillation, um, only Two of the 16 of those recurred. Um, you know, arthralgias are less. Um, bleeding uh, was one where it looks like you have almost a similar number. Um, but really, for a lot of these, uh, these don't recur or not to the same severity, supporting that this is tolerable. The other thing that I'm not showing you, but is true in this study, is there were more discontinuations for progressive disease compared to intolerance, which I think is really impressive when you think 100% of these patients were intolerant to ibrutinib. So this was also done with xanabrutinib, uh, and I think that this also supports the idea that if one of these BTK inhibitors is not tolerable, um, the other ones really are, are, or really are expected to be for our patients. Um, so these are uh, patients who did not tolerate either ibrutinib or calibrutinib, although the majority of patients were on ibrutinib and didn't tolerate it. And the orange boxes are for adverse events that did not recur, and blue is the ones that recurred. So you can see there's a whole lot of orange here. And of the 66 ibrutinib intolerant events, uh, 58 of those, or 88%, did not recur. 
So this is prospective data with both a calibrutinib and then xanabrutinib in separate studies showing that it is uh, very um, feasible to switch patients to a different BTK inhibitor and that the strategy works and allows them to benefit. All right, so we will return to Matthew. So he decides to take a calibrutinib and it goes really well for him. He goes back to golfing. None of his joint pain recurs. He did get some headaches during the first um, kind of like a month or two of therapy um, that kind of went away the longer he was on it. And he thought, boy, this drug is absolutely fantastic. I'm living my life. And then after about two years, he comes to clinic and says, oh, I think I might have some enlarged lymph nodes again. And sure enough, his lymphocyte count has increased quite a bit and his hemoglobin, while still normal, had decreased a little bit. So he gets further testing, um, which shows that he has a BTK mutation. He's the BTK C41S mutation. So he has a marker of uh, molecular resistance in addition to what looks like overt evidence of uh, clinical disease progression. So both, uh, well, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib all bind at the C41 residue on BTK, and this mutation in the drug binding site is known to confer resistance. So um, now that this has happened, it's clear that some sort of change in treatment is needed. Um, so there's some options for what to do. So I guess one question is, what about xanabrutinib? Could that be used? I just told you it has the same exact mechanism, but that's a question that I get asked. Uh, could you do a PI3 kinase inhibitor? What about venetoclax? And then, you know, there's some other options that I think are very good ones, including a clinical trial with a non-covalent reversible BTK inhibitor su such as pertobrutinib. And then what about cellular therapy, um, which has become very exciting in hematology in general and in CLL, or a different type of clinical trial? So um, I'll just start by saying xanabrutinib is not expected to be effective, and with the PI3 kinase inhibitors, there's not a lot of data um, to support that. It is also upstream of BTK, so I wouldn't expect that to be effective. Um, but the other three options are all potentially good ones, and I'd love to hear what my co-presenters have to uh, say about those, and I'll start with Dr. Barrington's this time. So if... I am able to put the patient on a pertobrutinib trial or as compassionate use. I would prefer to stick with a BTK inhibitor. Um, but if that is not possible, then I would possibly um, do venetoclax because we have prospective data. So, you know, I agree. Sticking with the same class of drugs, the fact that they have a CIS41S mutation tells you that the CLL is dependent upon, you know, this target. And pyrobrutinib or another reversible BTK inhibitor, it, it would be a great option. Or a degrader. Now, we have degraders. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I also think that you um, have a patient that can continue benefiting from inhibition of a target. It's better to continue to utilize that to control their disease rather than switching classes of drug. Um, and then there's always a question for an individual you're taking care of whether or not a clinical trial is something they can actually do like just from a feasibility or, or individual person standpoint. Um, so I'm gonna show you data with venetoclax, which is FDA approved and is the only standard of care FDA approved drug that is known to be effective in this situation. So it's actually very important. Um, and then again, PI3 kinase inhibitors may work, but there's not a lot of data with that. Um, and then clinical trial options are outstanding um, for someone in this position including drugs like pertubrutinib or other reversible BTK inhibitors that bind at sites other than that uh, um, 
as C four eighty one residue, um, BTK degraders, and then you know completely novel mechanism therapies are also um, uh, exciting. So, uh, Matthew elects not to go on a clinical trial. He says, I don't want to do that. Um, so he gets what is the most effective known standard of care in the situation, which is venetoclax. And he is treated as per the Murano trial. So that's two years of venetoclax with uh, rituximab during the first six months of therapy. He has a very nice response, goes back to golfing. He does develop some neutropenia, but never gets infections. Um, and everything goes really well for him. That's a two-year fixed duration regimen. Um, but about six months after the completion of the Murano regimen, so six months off therapy, he then again notes that the lymph nodes are coming back and he is developing lymphocytosis. So he has clinical disease progression after completing this venetoclax regimen. And again, sequencing is done and he has persistence of the BTK mutations, but also something we do see in our patients, which is multiple PLC gamma 2 mutations that are found. So now the question is, well, what do we do? Uh, what do we do for Matthew at this point? Do we try a BTK inhibitor venetoclax combination? Do we retreat with something like a calibrutinib? Because he says, boy, that, that was pretty tolerable and worked. Should we do that? Um, do we go to a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? Is that something that is still going to work in this circumstance after he's now progressed on both a covalent BTK inhibitor and venetoclax? And then again, there's kinase inhibitors, which is kind of the one um, approved or standard of care therapy hasn't been exposed to. And then what about cellular therapies? He asked you about that. He read an article online says, hey, can I get this CAR-T stuff? That sounds neat. Um, so I think there's a couple options for, uh, for what, to, what to do. And I have my um, preferences, but I'd love to ask my co-presenters too. And I'll start with Dr. Bird this time if he's willing to share. I think no matter what you choose, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> say, uh, and the, the, say, at probably, probably this is somebody, the BTK inhibitor venetoclax combination is going to probably be active for a short period of time, uh, as is the PI3 kinase inhibitor, but you, you need something, you need something that's going to induce a durable remission and it's going to be something on a trial probably. And, you know, if you, something with cellular therapy. Yeah, it's it's tough because he had a relapse that was like so short, and then he has all these mutations. Uh, so, CAR T therapy or another clinical trial, I don't see. You know, like you could, while you get him to trial, you could consider PI3K, but it would be um, as a bridge to getting him like some more. Um, uh, with, the, with the PLC gamma two mutation, he's not going to respond to a BK <sighs> inhibitor. That's just an important thing for people to recognize. Um, I think the first thing you said was probably the most substantial, which is this is a problem. <laughs> like this person's in trouble. And I find that, you know, CLL, everyone has worked so hard over years to make therapy not only more effective, but also safer and more convenient for our patients. And I find that some of them are then surprised when you talk about something that requires clinical trial visits or something really involved like CAR-T therapy. They're like, wait, where's the third pill I can just take and go back to golfing? What do you mean this trial means I have to come once a month? I don't understand this. And so I think that even though you might have discussed it, and I tried to at multiple points along the disease course, especially when people become resistant to a BTK inhibitor, um, that what you 
you have to do is build this expectation. It might get more difficult in the future, but people are still surprised when you suggest doing something less easy than just take these tolerable pills and go back to your life. And still, you know, the clinical trials are good options. They're not, you know, as intensive as they could be, but it is a big change. And I think that, uh, you know, with reversible BTK inhibitors with the PLC gamma 2 mutation that's downstream of BTK, so that's not a good option. Although there is data with pertubrutinib that it can work in um, patients that are resistant to both ibrutinib um, and venetoclax uh, with BTK mutation. So, you know, the fact that they're resistant to both doesn't mean necessarily for everybody that won't work. But with the PLC gamma 2 mutation, you know, that's a little different. But this is really a time to enroll on a, a novel mechanism study and then definitely to have a heart-to-heart -heart about CAR T therapy, see if they can do that. So those are kind of the options we discussed. Okay, so this was shown earlier and I'm showing it again here um, just to look at kind of what happens to people taking ibrutinib. And again, this is ibrutinib because this is um, kind of longer term data. There's more experience with ibrutinib. And the graph is showing you cumulative incidence of discontinuation. And you can see both other events, which is toxicity and actually transformation to aggressive lymphomas kind of plateau. But the CLL progression increases the longer people have been on the drug. Um, so this is a problem that gets worse with time rather than better. So resistance to these drugs. And I think um, that makes it really important for our patients. And then there's kind of a pie chart of um, kind of mechanisms of molecular resistance. So you can see the vast majority have uh, just a BTK mutation. Um, there's patients that have both BTK and PLC gamma 2 mutations, and you can have multiple um, types of BTK mutations as well. And then um, PLC gamma 2 um, mutations make up a smaller chunk of the pie. And then there is, uh, you know, somewhere around 20% or sometimes a little less, depending on which uh, cohort you're looking at, where you actually don't identify either BTK or PLC gamma 2 mutations. So something has caused resistance in these patients, but it's probably more complex than just one thing happening here. So now I'm going to show you some data on venetoclax, and I'm going to separate it by people who were resistant to BTK inhibitor and people who were not. So this is the um, results from the Murano trial. This is the one I mentioned earlier that Matthew had been treated with this regimen. So it's a two-year fixed duration regimen of venetoclax with rituximab during the first six months. And the comparator here was BR. So you can see the uh, green curve not doing quite as well. That's bendamustine and rituximab. So the one we're really interested in is, is the blue, which, of course, this was better than bendamustine and rituximab. A high number of patients in this study had deletion 17P or TP53 mutations. The important thing about this study that I think is uh, really vital to realize when looking at it is that these patients weren't really exposed to BTK inhibitors. There were very, very few patients in this randomized phase three study that had been exposed to a BTK inhibitor or were resistant to it. So looking at this data is really understanding what venetoclax will do for someone who is not resistant to a BTK inhibitor. And when you're counseling someone who's progressed on a BTK inhibitor about what to expect with venetoclax, this isn't the relevant data. This is the data more for selection of venetoclax instead of a BTK inhibitor during that discussion. And you can see that median progression-free survival is uh, over 53 months, which is outstanding. This data here is the data for what to kind of what to expect when people are resistant to a BTK inhibitor. 
Um, so this is a specific study in patients who had discontinued ibrutinib. The vast majority had discontinued for progression, but there are some patients who were intolerant included in this cohort. And the median progression-free survival here is right around 24 months. So instead of 53 months, you're now looking at a median of 24 months for your patients. And this is expected. The more things people have been treated with, the less well future therapies work. Um, so it's, it's, you know, this is an expected thing to see after resistance to other drugs, but it's important because the duration of the Murano regimen for venetoclax is about 24 months, which is the median of what to expect here. So if I'm talking to someone who's resistant to a BTK inhibitor who chooses venetoclax, even if we use the Murano regimen, and this was a, a venetoclax single-agent monotherapy study, I don't counsel people that they can expect two years of venetoclax and then being observed off therapy because I know that a good number of patients will progress before they get there. I'm not saying I don't discontinue therapy with venetoclax in people with a deep remission, but you just can't expect the same benefit. Um, this is uh, data from the Murano study again. So this is going back to the non-BTK inhibitor resistant population. And this is looking at treatments that patients took after finishing venetoclax and rituximab and then progressing. Um, and specifically those who took BTK inhibitors, the BR um, arm data is included on this slide as well. But you can see the overall response rate for people who took a BTK inhibitor um, after finishing the Murano regimen with venetoclax and rituximab is 100%. So this really supports that BTK inhibitors are effective when given after venetoclax. This is not a prospective trial data. This is retrospective data. Um, and this is now going back to the population of people who had progressed on a BTK inhibitor and then progressed on venetoclax. So this is a study looking at people who progressed on venetoclax. And uh, you can see that the progression-free survival for patients who had not taken a BTK inhibitor is good. But if you look at the far side, they have um, progression-free survival for BTK inhibitor-exposed patients. The blue line is those who discontinued for adverse events. And the kind of uh, gold line is for um, people who had progressed on a BTK inhibitor. So what you're seeing is that those who progressed on a BTK inhibitor and then progressed on venetoclax you don't really expect a good benefit if you go back to your BTK inhibitor. And this actually seems obvious. So once you've become resistant to a drug, doing something else and then going back to the drug is not a good strategy. I just think it's really important to highlight um, kind of these differences with the venetoclax outcomes in patients who are resistant to BTK inhibitor versus those who aren't. And also just showing that uh, Matthew's question of, can I go back to a calibrutinib? The answer is that's not going to work. So what can we do with BTK inhibitors still? So there's um, BTK inhibitors that are non-covalent, reversible, and actually bind at a different residue. So it's showing you ibrutinib, which has, uh, these answers are also true for calibrutinib and xanabrutinib here. Under the ibrutinib column, we're just showing you one of those. And then um, ARQ531 pertubrutinib, which you've heard us talk about, and SNX, SNS062, and those are all reversible non-covalent BTK inhibitors that do not require the C481S residue. So these are drugs that um, should be active even in the presence of the C481S mutation. 
and they're all investigational at this point. So here's some data with pertubrutinib. It's showing you the uh, kinase map. And then here's some clinical data with pertubrutinib from the Bruin study. And this is just the kind of waterfall plot on change in uh, lymph nodes. And it's colored by prior therapies. So you can see the dark blue is discontinued BTK inhibitor for progression. And uh, the red stars on the bottom are people that had previously um, taken a BCL2 inhibitor. You can see very good efficacy even in this population. So it's really exciting um, to see that pertubrutinib can work. And you'll see the little kind of crosses are people with a C4NS mutation, and you can see a reduction in disease. So pertubrutinib, which is a reversible BTK inhibitor, is active in this setting. It can also be given to um, patients with prior BTK inhibitor intolerance and is generally tolerable. Okay, and then the last thing we were kind of talking about, um, which I'll cover briefly, is uh, CAR-T therapy. So this is data from a phase one study of lysocell um, in patients with CLL. This was done in a very high-risk CLL cohort. So this is patients like Matthew. You either had to have high-risk disease and failed two or more prior therapies, or if you have standard cytogenetic uh, risk disease, you had to fail three or more. So these are really um, patients that don't have good standard options and would benefit from something like cellular therapy um, to have durable disease control. And they were um, collected for CAR-T manufacturer, treated with lymphodepletion, lysosol was infused, and there's two different dose levels that were used, and then they were followed after that. Um, and you can see the study really selected who they kind of meant to, which is high-risk patients. A good portion of patients had received prior brutinib and venetoclax, including those with progression or failure of those. Um, so here's some of the response data, which I think is really exciting. So it is broken down by dose level um, and by total. Um, and if you look, there's a good number of patients um, who achieved a response. So it's not that people universally responded, um, but this is a very good um, overall response rate for, um, for patients in this situation where you really don't expect any standard drugs to work. I mean, you've got 82%, that's pretty outstanding. And what's more is they're showing you the MRD rates and uh, patients that had undetectable uh, minimal residual disease were more likely to stay in remission. Here is a duration of response, and then I always like to look at progression-free survival. And there are patients who progress on this study. Again, this isn't something that's, uh, you know, going to completely fix CLL for everybody. You know, we don't expect that in this population. But the exciting part for me is really to see the shape of this where you've got a, a flattening where you're seeing a good number of patients are really deriving a durable benefit from this. Um, this is going on into a phase two study, and I fully expect as our technology and ability to safely and effectively deliver cellular therapies to patients improves, this will really benefit patients, particularly those with resistance to our targeted agents. All right, so here's my summary on this. So just because these are very different, I thought it's important to make this points one and two. BTK inhibitor intolerance does absolutely not exclude this class of drugs and can be managed by switching to a different covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, so fibrutinib, acalabrutinib is also approved and xanabrutinib, while um, off-label, is in the NCCN guidelines for intolerant to other BTK inhibitors. 
Um, BTK inhibitor resistance, though, does require change. So you can either move to a totally different class of drugs, venetoclax being the most proven, or a different type of BTK inhibitor, which, as we discussed, is probably the most exciting possibility. Um, and then I think we've also made the point that patients with BTK inhibitor resistance really do require a long-term strategy. Um, the duration of benefit of other standard therapies is not likely to be long, so you really have to talk to people about what you're going to do down the line. And then um, BTK inhibitors are effective after venetoclax, but only in patients who did not previously have resistance to them. Okay, so I'll end there. That was that was great. We have we have several questions about in, uh, you know, intolerance, and we're getting to the end of the symposia. We're getting to compete with the music too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I, you know, I, I, one question, and I think that's relevant to this, uh, you know, to this, this great last talk that we had is, do you, you know, say, do you routinely check for BTK or PLC gamma two mutations after treating with venetoclax in a patient who's had a prior BTK inhibitor? And so, um, you mean if you're going back to a BTK yeah, inhibitor, or, or if you're just deciding what you're going to do next? Yeah. So um, in people never exposed to BTK inhibitor, you really don't find those mutations, so I don't check. But in patients who were previously exposed to a BTK inhibitor, I do because I think it really informs the discussion with the patient as to um, what you're going to do next. And I would, not, um, I would not treat someone with a covalent BTK inhibitor if they have a, a mutation in BTK or PLC gamma 2. Dr. Brentos? I would do the same. Essentially, um, if they have the mutation, then um, definitely would prioritize that patient to participate in a pertuprotinib trial or another non-covalent uh, um, BTK inhibitor. Yeah, I, I would agree. I just moved to the University of Cincinnati, and before unpacking my ba my boxes in my office, I was sure that for my patients, I had mutational testing set up that was sensitive and that includes all these because. Even if patients don't, if patients didn't have them before, I've seen patients pop up with BTK inhibitor. If they've had a BTK inhibitor, they didn't have a mutation before. You treat them on venetoclax. What comes back is often different because uh, these these BTK clones have a fast growth curve. What about age in deciding with your patient? Would you send a seventy two year old to CAR T cell? If the patient is fit, age doesn't matter, honestly. Uh, I completely agree. I think if the patient is fit, I would definitely um, still consider CAR T-cell therapy. I do find that people in their 90s usually aren't open to doing CAR T-cell therapy. So you do get to a certain point where like in the context of their life, it doesn't make sense. But I do not have an age cutoff for doing those. It's strictly based on fitness. And again, there are some younger patients that aren't suitable for CAR T. So. And then there's a common question about decreasing dose in, with first-generation BTK inhibitors and diminishing adverse events. Um, what's the two of your well, uh, I, My experience? experience doing that is that it doesn't really help for the vast majority of patients. Like as, you know, I've tried it in some cases and most patients have the toxicity recur and I find that switching to a different one is much more effective. Yeah, same here. The only times we've done it is when we're um, waiting for the insurance to approve the second generation BTK inhibitor. Yeah, you have a uniform uh, agreement on that question. And then say, I, I hear this often, say, do you, but do patients have, do, do you find in your practice patients don't like BID dosing? Because you have BID dosing with xanabrutinib and acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib. 
Yeah, for for um, at the beginning they don't mind. It's after they go to six months that they're like, doctor, can I go to once daily dosing? And you know, if they're having a good response, it's hard to <laughs> tell them to stick to twice daily, even though you know we have some data that it's not as good. Um, so I try to get them to stick to the twice daily dose. Yeah, I also I don't tell them they can go to once daily. I find it's like patient um, specific because some patients that are already on BID or TID drugs for other health conditions are like, yeah, sure, fine. I'll just put it in my pillbox twice a day. No problem. This is all good. I'm already taking all these things twice a day. But the young patients who are very unused to taking any pills at all or who take only one pill are strongly motivated to do a daily rather than a BID dosing. And I have some patients where I'm like, really, if I could just get you to take this once a day, it would be great. Just so. Yeah. Oh, well, I think I think this, uh, we've covered most of the questions. There are a few about other adverse events or individual, how we would, re- would manage individual patients. And you can contact any of the three of us. We all run um, referral clinics and answer emails. We're easy to find. And we're happy to answer questions for any of you about anything we've talked about or other things related to CLL. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HZU860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.